0: Let's all go to the Welcome to the Saturday frights podcast. I'm the projectionist, your co-host for this radio program. Now come join your host Vic Sage as we enter the vault. To once again discuss retro horror films and television programs. (laughs) Montag. I knew it. I knew it. Of course, all this, the existence of a secret library, was known in high places. But there's no way of getting at it. Only once before have I seen so many books in one
1: place. It looks like we have another pack showing at the Haunted Drive-In Projectionist. Naturally. Our
0: dystopian double feature is off to a fine start. Yes? How? Can the patrons resist Francois Truffaut's adaptation of Ray Bradbury's literary masterpiece, Fahrenheit 451, followed by Stanley Kubrick's
1: A Clockwork Orange. That appears to be true for all the people out there tonight, my friend. I wonder if we're going to see some of them leave, though, once A Clockwork Orange starts. That is a hard movie projectionist. Hey, what are you fiddling with there? Is that a dowsing rod? (laughs) Hmm, I suppose you could call it that. If you're a simpleton... Sorry man, it just sort of looked like a dowsing rod I saw in use when I was a kid. Would you call the Mona Lisa simply a painting surge?
0: What you see in my hands is a work of art you don't. This is my creation and it will finally lead us to the den of those plague rats wherever they might have holed up these long
1: months. Oh, well, congratulations of course. I didn't mean to upset you with my comment, my friend. Is that, is that Ivory right there? (laughs)
0: Let us call it Human Ivory, yes? These are the finger bones of Brother Apollo. This here is part of the fabled Amulet of Vigor, once possessed by Anowan, the Rune Sage. The metal itself was forged from the weather vane found in Bishop's Park. You might recall when lightning struck it on a clear day back in 1976, and it hurt her. Oh! Look at the control panel, Victor. The recording light is on. Which means that once more, the dear listeners will be tuning
1: in for a brand new Saturday
0: Frights
1: radio broadcast. Friends, thank you for always for taking the time out of your busy schedule to give the show a listen. The Projectionist and I were just talking about this, um... I'm not sure what to call this work of art you've created, Projectionist. It is a dowsing rod, Victor. (laughs) Although,
0: instead of it being used by a water witch or diviner for locating water, dear listeners, it shall find where those traitorous plague rats have managed to hide from
1: my wrath that you unleashed on us in the first place. What was that, Victor? I was just saying that I know I mentioned it on a past pop culture retrorama podcast already, which was part of the Superblog team-up when discussing Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. But one of my absolute favorite sub-genres is post-apocalyptic films, with dystopian movies a close second.
0: I must assume,
1: Serge...
0: That as Fahrenheit
1: 451
0: was released in 1966,
1: that you did not see this film at your local drive-in or movie theater? You'd be correct. I first saw Fahrenheit 451 on WTBS as part of one of their Sunday morning movies. I was probably around 9 or 10, and it made a pretty big impression on me, to say the least. In particular, I can recall watching in horror at the demise of B. DeFell's character, of the book lady, surrounded in flames as her home. A sanctuary of literature is destroyed, and she choosing to be burned along with her books. This was my first introduction to Bradbury. Of course, this was before I had the chance to see the Walt Disney adaptation of Something Wicked This Way Comes. In all honesty, I wasn't even aware of who Ray Bradbury was when watching Fahrenheit 451. Although, I would soon learn of the iconic author, and he would definitely become one of my favorites when I was a little older. Did you enjoy Francois
0: Truffaut's
1: adaptation when you were a mere pup? I most certainly did. And, considering around that time, I had become a voracious reader the thought of a society that would ban books, and burn literature filled me with such dread that I actually found hiding spots in my house for my favorite books. At this point in time, that mainly consisted of Choose Your Own Adventures. What about you, though? Did you show the movie here at the Haunted Drive-In? Yes,
0: although you will recall it was known by another name at that point in time. I have some issues with Francois Truffaut's adaptation, as did some film critics of the day, such as Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who in his review made his feelings quite clear, saying, quote, pretentious and pedantic production, based on an idea that called for slashing satire of a sort beyond true grasp, and with language he couldn't fashion into lively and witty dialogue. The consequence is a dull picture, dully fashioned and dully played, which is rendered are the more sullen by the dazzling
1: color in which it is photographed." End quote. Ouch. Well, it could just be that the film needed time to find the right audience, as it looks like it is favorably reviewed these days. For what it might be worth, from what I've read online, it seems like Ray Bradbury was okay with the 1966 movie, although, like yourself, he felt it had problems. It seems like Bradbury was enamored with the score provided by Bernard Herrmann though, sharing that in particular he felt that the scene with the book people walking through the snowy woods, speaking aloud the passages from the books or collections of poems they have become, married with Herrmann's music, was both poignant and moving. I would say that catching that showing of Fahrenheit 451 with my father that Sunday morning was my first taste of the dystopian genre. Except for the fact I had already seen 1971's Silent Running, 1976 Logan's Run, as well as John Carpenter's Escape from New York in 81. Both Silent Running and Escape from New York are in my top 1020 films of all time, I might add. It seems that science
0: fiction pictures in particular are more likely to present
1: a dystopian setting. Yeah, I suppose so. It certainly appears to be the case in film and television. I mean, the online definition is, quote, an imagined state or society in which there is great suffering or injustice, typically one that is totalitarian or post-apocalyptic, end quote. Just off the top of my head, with that definition, Solent Green, The Road Warrior, The Running Man, Dark City, Children of Men, The Road, and Snowpiercer are fantastic examples of dystopian movies. On TV, you also have Snowpiercer, but there's also The Handmaid's Tale, Altered Carbon, The Man in the High Castle, and I guess Into the Badlands and The Purge work as well. In fact, the subject of the podcast today, Examination Day, is definitely a dystopian story. The first segment of the sixth episode of the first season of the Twilight Zone Revival, which was originally broadcast back on November 1st of 1985.
0: For 20 years, the portal has been closed. It is about to be reopened. This is a detour, a twist in time, a curve of space. Journey into man's imagination with America's most fantastic storytellers. Coming soon to CBS, all new tales from the Twilight Zone.
1: We've obviously talked a bit about the 1985 Twilight Zone revival in past episodes of the Saturday Frights podcast. If you've been with us for the six years we've been doing the show, you might recall the first episode was all about another season one segment, 1986's Dead Run. Remind me, Victor,
0: is that when many listeners were flocking to the radio sets to catch our weekly radio broadcasts?
1: One of these days, you're going to finally come to grips with this being a podcast, but Yes, we used to have more listeners. Anyway, as I honestly believe that Rod Serling's original Twilight Zone is one of the greatest television shows of all time, you better believe that I was excited for the Twilight Zone series revival. It just seemed like a magical time, especially since, as we did talk about on the Amazing Stories, Mummy Daddy episode, we kids of the 80s were experiencing a rebirth in TV anthologies, not just with Amazing Stories and the Twilight Zone, but we also had the new Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Ray Bradbury Theater, as well as Tales from the Dark Side. Do not forget
0: the HBO adaptation of EC
1: Comics. Tales from the Crypt, Sage? Well, that was at the end of the 80s, but you are correct. It made for some memorable TV watching. I think it bears repeating, listeners, even though we've brought it up on some of those previous podcasts where we tackled episodes of the 85 Twilight Zone revival. When the series debuted on the evening of Friday, September 27th of 1985, it had a pretty major impact. We did not hurt
0: that the series began with two segments directed by none other than A Nightmare on
1: Elm Street's Wes Craven. You're totally right, with Shatterday, which starred Bruce Willis, and A Little Peace and Quiet, featuring a remarkable performance by Close Encounters of the Third Kind's Melinda Dillon. The new Twilight Zone threw down a gauntlet. Shatterday was adapted from a story by the legendary Harlan Ellison, with future Farscape creator Rockne S. O'Bannon as story editor and writer on the series The Twilight Zone revival was updated for an audience that perhaps was a little more cynical than when Rod Serling created the original series. Even the intro to the series, which featured a new theme by the Grateful Dead, that I personally think managed to pay tribute to both the themes composed by Bernard Herrmann and Marius Constant from the original series, featured images a little more creepy than the 1959 series. While there was a brief glimpse of Rod Serling, you also had a nuclear explosion. And even the animated Twilight Zone title, looking something like a Rorschach test, briefly transforms into skulls. Listeners, those of you of a certain age might remember the feeling of shock at the ending of A Little Peace and Quiet. I won't exactly spoil it, but let's just say it is a nightmarish scenario to say the very least. Back when it originally aired, the following Monday at school, during civics class, our teacher kind of used most of the hour to talk about that segment itself, and for what it's worth, it really shook me up. And it turns out that I wasn't the only kid that found it frightening.
0: I seem to recall you mentioning in our past radio broadcasts that you were none too keen on this new Twilight Zone series, yes?
1: That is correct, my friend. While I grew up with my father telling me bedtime stories that were actually the plots of Twilight Zone episodes, I was able to catch some of the original series in reruns before the 85 revival. I was put off by what I considered to be unnecessary meanness, or, or possibly I should say, the cynicism of the show. More to the point though, in my mind, it didn't follow what I considered to be the rules of the Twilight Zone. While this wasn't true in every single episode of the original series, most of the time there was a sense of cosmic justice. Like in EC Comics Tales from the Crypt, there was a comeuppance to those characters that were evil, or at the very least they were afforded the chance to change their ways before getting punished. Yet again, not in every episode, time enough at last being a prime example. The late and great Burgess Meredith, played Henry Bemis wants nothing more in the world than to be able to read, something he is constantly denied, and finds himself as possibly the last man on Earth after an atomic war. But his fortunes seem to change when he stumbles upon the remains of the public library, and now, surrounded with enough books to last him a lifetime and the time to read them, he trips and his glasses shatter on the steps of the library, rendering him basically blind. There were just some stories in the original Twilight Zone where bad things happened to good people. That is where the horror of the series came in. With the Twilight Zone revival in 85, it seemed to me as a teenager that almost all of the stories were pretty dark. At least for the first couple of months. There were a few times where in that civics class we would take a few minutes on a Monday morning to talk about a certain segment. Like The Elevator, Shadow Man... Nightcrawlers, a small talent for war, as well as the subject for our podcast today, Examination Day. Now, I feel I should add that over the years, I've actually grown to like the series. I still feel that the original Twilight Zone is one of the greatest TV series of all time, with more hits than misses. But considering the revival in 85 featured stories from the likes of Ray Bradbury, George R.R. Martin, J. Michael Straczynski, Richard Matheson, J.D. (laughs) Fingelson,
0: The writer of Dark Knight of the Scarecrow,
1: if I'm not mistaken. You're totally right, projectionist. Anyway, there was a ton of talent in front of and behind the scenes of the series, to put it mildly. The teleplay for Examination Day was written by Philip Duguerre, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Who some of you listeners might know best for being the writer and producer for the popular Simon & Simon TV series. Or perhaps for being the writer and director for the 1978 Doctor Strange made-for-television film which had been intended as a pilot for a possible series, which sadly wasn't picked up by CBS. Daguerre adapted the story of the same name from the prolific author, screenwriter, and playwright Henry Slessar.
0: Indeed,
1: dear listeners,
0: Henry Slessar was known to write for such periodicals of the day as amazing stories, fantastic, imaginative tales, and... Alfred Hitchcock's
1: mystery magazine. Absolutely, man. Slessar was employed as a copywriter, and I've read online that he was the one responsible for coming up with the term coffee break. But in 1955, he sold his first short story for the September issue of Imaginative Tales, a story entitled The Brat. And, as I understand it, he was producing at least one full story a week, covering genres ranging from crime and detective to horror, science fiction, and mysteries.
0: With many of these tales featuring an
1: ironic twist ending... Which is why he was snatched up by none other than Alfred Hitchcock, who enjoyed his story, M is for the Many, which was published in the pages of the Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Slessar would write teleplays for the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV series, many of them based on his own work. In addition to writing two episodes of the original Twilight Zone, The Old Man in the Cave and The Self-Improvement of Salvador Ross in addition to writing 849 episodes of the mystery and crime soap opera called The Edge of Night.
0: Oh, yes. That was an incredibly
1: popular episodic television program during its time. I'm afraid that I wasn't aware of the series until doing research for this episode, Projectionist. It has been stated by several sources
0: that the likes of Betty Davis... Cole Porter, Rich Little, and even First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt
1: were quite the fans of the televised soap opera, Sage? It apparently ended in 1975, which would explain why I didn't know about it, I suppose. Back on subject, Examination Day was first published in Playboy magazine in the February 1958 issue, most definitely a short story. Heck, the Twilight Zone segment itself is only ten minutes long, which might be the shortest subject we've ever tackled on the show.
0: And yet, I am sure that your synopsis will undoubtedly be twice that length, Hey,
1: dear listeners. (laughs) The director for Examination Day was Paul Lynch, who would direct eight other segments for the Twilight Zone revival. In addition to such TV series as Dark Room, that was the horror anthology we mentioned on episode 92 of the podcast. He also directed episodes of the Ray Bradbury Theater, Star Trek The Next Generation, RoboCop, and Xena, Warrior Princess, to name just a few. Victor, for shame. You're going to leave out his feature film work? Well, I know he directed straight to video movies like No Contest with Andrew Dice Clay and... (laughs) When you bemoan the fact that we have
0: fewer and fewer listeners tuning into our radio broadcast, dear boy, perhaps it is your lack of research which is to blame. Dear listeners, Paul Lynch directed 1980's Prom Night, 1982's Humongous, and 1986's Bullies.
1: Oh, well, I was just focusing on his TV work since we we're focusing on a television episode. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Moving on. Examination Day stars David Mindenhall as young Richard Dickey Jordan Jr., Mindenhall might be best known for his role as Sylvester Stallone's son in 1987's cult classic Over the Top, but even at the age of 11, he was making a living as a voice actor in all manner of animated specials and series, including 1981's Puff and the Incredible Mr. Nobody, the third animated TV special based on Lipton and Yarrow's Puff the Magic Dragon Song, but Mindenhall was also featured in the Punky Brewster animated series Centurions, G.I. Joe, The Berenstain bears as well as the transformers where he voiced the character of daniel witwicky also featured in examination day are christopher allport of to live and die in la fame as richard jordan dickie's father as well as house of cards elizabeth normand who plays ruth jordan dickie's mother Overall, Examination Day is very faithful to Slessar's original short story. There are a few differences, such as Alport being much more emotional and loving to Dickie. As usual, we will be going with full spoilers here. So, if you've not had the pleasure of seeing Examination Day for yourself yet, pause the podcast and check it out. You should be able to find it online. We'll wait for you. Projectionist, I believe you have something picked out for the listeners to enjoy? Most certainly, Victor. I thought it would be appropriate
0: to share these television spots. Advertisements for films that fall into the dystopian category. In the future, cities will become deserts, roads will become battlefields, and the hope of mankind will appear as a stranger. The road warrior Rated R starts May 21st at the Man's Vogue Hollywood in Man's National Westwood. They come from another time. A machine wrapped in flesh A soldier from a distant war. Both after a woman who holds the key to the future one wants to kill her. The other must protect her.
1: I'm here to help you. You've been targeted for termination.
0: The Terminator. Your future is in his hands. The Terminator. Rated R. The number one movie in the USA is now
1: playing everywhere. Examination Day, besides being incredibly short, is also a Twilight Zone segment that features no intro or outro narration from Charles Aidman. The segment begins with a brief panoramic view of a futuristic city, for as far as the eye can see, there are no trees, no greenery, just concrete and roads, with an odd, almost pyramid-like shape in the distance. No doubt the seat of power
0: for this futuristic
1: government. You might be right about that, my friend. In all honesty, there isn't much color in this segment. Some light blues, whites, and a whole lot of silver. While in some series that might be used to brighten the overall setting, everything comes off drab and dreary in Examination Day. Even the dark blue icing covering Dickie's block of a birthday cake looks unappetizing but it doesn't seem to affect the cheerfulness of the birthday boy, who we learn has just turned 12 years old.
0: Yes, Dickie Jordan is a rather
1: amiable young boy,
0: quick to want to please his parents. Using his birthday wish, For receiving passing marks on his government-mandated test the following
1: week. When Dickie tells his parents this, they react strangely. Enough so that it worries the young boy. It's like he mentions something he isn't supposed to. His parents quickly try to assure Dickie that he didn't do anything wrong, but he shouldn't have used something as special as his birthday wish on wanting to pass the upcoming exam. Richard Jordan and his wife
0: both feel that their child shouldn't even be thinking about the examination especially on his
1: birthday of all days. Dickie explains, though, that is pretty much what all the kids at school have been talking about, with some of them already having taken the test themselves and telling their fellow students how easy it is. As the projectionist already mentioned, Dickie just wants to ace the exam so his parents will be proud, to which they are quick to admit they are already proud of Dickie. Did you notice, however, Victor,
0: that Richard Jordan frequently changes the subject of this upcoming exam? Both of the loving parents, as a matter of
1: fact, frequently do so totally. They're exhibiting an almost forced calmness. Actually, to me, it sounds like Richard's voice breaks when he mentions to his son that turning 12 means he's almost a man. Allport and Normant really do a good job with their performances in this segment. They're playing it a little more subtle than perhaps the projectionist and I are describing it, but you can obviously tell something is bothering the parents. Dickie seems more than ready to take the test, though, pointing out that at school, he's always getting good grades. It is his mother, perhaps a a little forcibly that changes that subject reminding her son that there is still the cake to cut and after that he can open his present the birthday present in question happens to be an omnicoder what looks like a portable television unit in this future once dickie passes the exam he will be given his number an identity as it were which he can then use with the omnicoder to call his friends and Well, I guess it's like a video telephone, actually. What a horrifying future.
0: Examination Day presents, dear listeners... Being forced to look into a small screen when using the telephone to pass along a message. Imagine if you had just woken up and those who are calling you could see you in such a disheveled state. (gasps) Or even how you take care of
1: your own home. My friend, you really need to get out of the haunted drive-in more. Listeners, I'll try to show the projectionist what FaceTime is after we finish the podcast. After Dickie's birthday is over, later that evening, while his father reads his copy of the Galactic News, the boy asks what exactly the government examination is all about. By the way, I thought that the Galactic Newspaper was an interesting addition, something not included in the original 1958 short story. Perhaps, in this futuristic society, they have managed to leave the Earth and begin to terraform other planets.
0: Perhaps, Victor, the events of Examination Day do
1: not take place on the Earth at all. That's a very good point, my friend. I suppose we just don't have enough information to go on. Although, I definitely think it is meant to be Earth in the Slessar story. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Richard Jordan
0: explains to his 12-year-old son that it is a test that everyone must take so that the government might learn how intelligent its citizens are. Dear Dickie Jordan wonders if the exam might be similar to the test given to him
1: at school. His father remarks that it is sort of the same. We should point out that Dickie's mother can be seen in the background, giving concerned glances towards them both. Richard shifts the subject of the conversation away from the exams, mentioning to Dickie that he should just watch TV until it's time for bed. Dickie shoots down the idea because he doesn't feel there's anything worth watching, and he'd rather read anyway. Which causes a look of
0: fear to cross
1: Ruth Jordan's face. Thanks to that comment from Dickie earlier in the segment, we know that a week has passed. It is now the day of the exam and perhaps a sign of ominous things to come, a torrential rain is coming down. And whatever the true purpose of the test might be, the strain is too much for Ruth, as she and her husband get into an argument, with Richard asking her to keep her voice down, stating to her that Dickie will do fine on the exam, with Ruth worriedly remarking that he's not like the other kids. Richard assures her that Dickie will be fine. It sounds more like he's trying to convince himself, listeners, although it is obvious as both parents hug each other tightly they are quite worried about Dickie and this exam. Their son, as has been evident throughout the segment, has no concerns at all about how he will do during the test. Although he's upset about the rain, since he doesn't have to go back to school after the test, he had planned on going to the park afterwards. At the very least,
0: the little scamp can look forward to receiving his omni call
1: it, after his test. Obviously, Examination Day works so well, not just because it's shortened to the point, but also because of how likable Mindenhall is as Dicky. His natural exuberance is contagious and does much to distract the viewer. I mention this because even though there are these cryptic glances between his parents and the continuous mentions of the exam.
0: Or oh, the fact that as Richard Jordan hurries his son out to do- For their appointment at the government testing center, Ruth Jordan grabs her son tightly, whispering that she loves him
1: very much. Yet again, Dickie is quick to explain he's just ready to please his parents. He literally makes mention that he won't let them down. The testing center is a bustling place. And after receiving his identity code, he waits with his father along with about six other children and a parent. Actually, Serge, did you notice
0: that it was only the
1: fathers
0: in the room with their children?
1: Actually, I did not notice that. Interesting, perhaps that is something else that Philip Degar was adding to Slessar's short story. I wonder if in this segment the futuristic society is patriarchal in nature. Hmm, maybe the listeners will leave us with some of their thoughts in the comments on this podcast post on the Pop Culture RetroRama site. Anyway, Dickie's name is called. He hesitates, only long enough to ask if his father will be waiting for him after the exam. Apparently, the testing center doesn't allow that, though. They'll call the parents when it's time to come pick up their children. Dear listeners,
0: Dickie Jordan might be getting a little concerned about the exam after all.
1: Yes? Not of failing it, at least I don't think that is the reason, because once more, just before he leaves with the attendant, he tells his father not to worry, that he will do well on the exam. Upon entering the examination room, Dicky is handed a vial containing a red liquid and is told to drink its contents. After downing it, the attendant explains that the liquid is to ensure that Dickie will only answer truthfully to the questions he is asked. Making a child drink a truth serum seems a little harsh indeed, uh? Definitely. Dickie is curious as to why anyone would lie while taking the test. With the attendant explaining that the government doesn't think that the young boy would lie, the liquid is just to make sure. After checking Dickie's eyes with a pen light, the no doubt to make sure that the serum has taken effect. Agreed. The attendant asks the young boy to sit in front of a computer. Dickie doesn't even need to use a keyboard. The computer will ask questions, and he only needs to answer them as best he can. The young boy, with all seriousness, informs the computer that he's ready. And the first question we hear is, complete this sequence of numbers. 1, 4, 7, 10. The scene shifts to the Jordan's apartment. The rain is still coming down which we can see from the open window that Ruth is staring out of. Richard is nervously pacing the floor when their Omnicoder rings, the screen displaying information. I suppose it is the number for the testing center. Ruth and Richard look at each other for a second before they nod, smiling and holding hands before answering the call. Uh, yes, hello?
0: Mr. and Mrs. Richard Jordan, please. Yeah, uh, speaking. Here. This is the government educational service calling. Your son, Richard Jordan, Jr., has completed the government examination and the results have been analyzed. We regret to inform you, your son's intelligence quotient has exceeded the government standard according to rule 84, section five of the new code. You may specify now whether you wish his body interred by the government
1: or would you prefer a private burial? No! no. 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 Yeah, the segment fades to black with the sound of thunder and rain, as well as the sobs of Ruth and Richard. Dickie is dead, judged too smart for this dystopian society. Leaving the viewer to question why would the government in this dark future not want anyone to be smarter than a predetermined standard?
0: Perhaps the government is ruled by a dictatorship victor
1: of someone smarter than themselves overthrowing them. Friends, I was absolutely st- stunned by the revelation that Dickie was dead, killed for being too smart, when I originally saw this segment. It stuck with me, and much like with Fahrenheit 451, I couldn't help but find myself being worried that I might go to sleep and wake up in this nightmarish, dystopian future. Well, dear boy, I can
0: assure you
1: if that had occurred, you would be absolutely the safest soul on the planet. <laughs> Thanks, Projectionist but i think you can see why the teacher brought it up in class she not only touched upon that very point you made about a dictatorship but she had to share our personal views and feelings on the segment naturally we were all bummed out how it all turned out and the majority of my fellow students believed that Dickie was probably given a lethal injection or perhaps another vial of liquid to drink that just made him fall asleep and pass away Although, at the very least, I can tell you that in the original story by Henry Slessar, there is an added jab at the end, with a message playing from the government educational surface, which is described as having a brisk official voice stating, the fee for government burial is $10. That would be nearly
0: $100 today, dear listeners.
1: I have read online that many feel that Slessar's story is meant to be taken as a very darkly humorous story, which I guess the added sting of being charged so much money after learning their son has passed away could be taken that way, but I'm not so sure. And while the segment, much like the original story when read these days, kind of hints at what is going to befall Dickie, the source material also provides big clues on the lack of intelligence of Dickie's father. For example, there is an exchange between father and son about why it rains and why grass is the color green. Richard provides nonsensical answers, like no one knows why grass is green, or the fact that he mentions the sun is 5,000 miles away. Plus, as I mentioned earlier in the show, Dickie's father in the original story isn't quite as loving as in the Twilight Zone segment. But of course, the shock of the ending is just as powerful whether in Slessar's short story or the 1985 segment. And friends, I think that about brings us to the end of this episode. As always, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our podcast was provided by Peachy. Peachy is on Twitter, by the way. Peachy Pixel 8. My co-host, The Projectionist, has shuttered his own Facebook page for the time being, but he manages to generally share interesting trivia on films on a daily basis on the Saturday Frights Facebook page as always, I want to thank Rockford J for putting up with the abuse of the Projectionist on a nearly daily basis. Couldn't keep a lid on the vault without his hard work. As for myself, you can still find me posting on not just the Saturday Frights page, but the Diary of an Arcade Employee page, too. And, of course, the pop culture retrorama site. Saturday Frights has an Instagram account, by the way. If you want to check it out, you can find it. It's simply Saturday underscore Frights. If you'd like to contact me with suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at Vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. For all things pop culture and retro-related, feel free to visit us at the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Of course, we owe a great deal of gratitude to the Retroist himself, not just for originally hosting the podcast, but for allowing us for nearly 10 years to share our love of all things retro. If you do like the show, consider subscribing and giving us a rating over on iTunes. Our past catalog of episodes are slowly coming back online, but you can still listen to the entire collection, including The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast, Retro Radio Memories, and The Projectionist's Sinister Tales of Terror over on the Internet Archive. We are also available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Projectionist, you know what the next episode is, right? (laughs) Yes,
0: another chance to bore
1: the dear listeners with your synopsis. No, it's going to be episode 100. We hope you can join us, friends. This has been a pop culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Saturday Frights podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by any of the businesses or individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only and are not intended to infringe.